about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So, Titus 3, 3 to 8. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Okay. We are going through a series on faith and work and how the two work together and how you might work in the name of the Lord. Last two weeks, the first week we looked at the time in which we work between the grace and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and how that is to be the main reality that defines what we do and how we do it. Last week we looked at how we belong to the Lord as we work. We had to work as to the Lord. And we looked at the economic pressure placed on us and how the Lord summons us to work as Paul summoned the Colossae Slaves, go look on the podcast if you want to go catch up on either of those. But today I want to focus in on something in particular. And that's the reality, as Elaine's already been talking about, that as we are going to work, it is actually the Lord who is at work in us. And work is a wonderful time where He is spiritually unmaking and remaking us in a whole heap of really fascinating ways. I want to talk about that. This evening. But what's really interesting about this as a topic is it has become a secular topic already. A whole heap of startups have kind of happened in the last five years that are focused on what you would call the sacred design of work. Companies like the Sacred Design Lab or Ritualist, uh, these are companies focused on developing liturgical ways that you can integrate into different companies and workplaces. For example, Ritualist, who are a creative studio that believes better rituals build more conscious companies and connected communities. Rituals are intentional symbolic actions that heighten impact, importance, or meaning. This is really interesting. A spiritual consultant that comes alongside a company and suggests ways of integrating spiritual liturgy into the workflow of their employees. Really interesting stuff. And someone else came to me this morning with an even better example, so I put it in for you guys. Uh, this kind of language has started to pop up in all kinds of ways. We turn customers into fans, products into obsessions, employees into ambassadors, and brands into religions is another version of that. That there is a spiritual aspect to work happening. PwC, I picked on KPMG last week, PwC's turn have this fascinating leadership program that looks a really, really lot like uh, an old school revival meeting. 
It's about gathering young people into a place at one time to help develop them personally and spiritually. But here is the aim of the program that I've been told about. It's to convert young leaders to the company. To get their desires ticked into the company bottom line and the company objectives. It's a spiritualization of work. Here's a really dark example of how it works. Here's an Amazon labor union member on, on Twitter. Fun fact. Did you know that after every hour of work at Amazon, the computer taunts you with a 30-second break where you say mantras that help you come to peace with your own exploitation? Literally, it pops up, 30-second counter, and it tells you to rehearse these three things for the, the, as the counter goes down. And you, you, just look at the big picture here. Look at the big picture. Right? Spiritual design happening in work. Companies focused on converting leaders to desire what the company desires and go all in on the company. Brands becoming religions. Who is all of this for? Not the worker. Not the worker for the company. For its vision, for what it wants to do in the world. But what's really interesting about all of it is it is intensely spiritual. It is, in fact, discipleship. It's formation. It's the forming of selves for a particular end and their desires. When people ask me, why, why would you run things like Citizens at a Church? Why would you talk about faith and work? And I tell them, the reason is that faith has already invaded the workplace, whether you like it or not. And the question facing every believer is whether the formation will happen on the company's terms on the gospel's terms. Because the Lord, the great reality that all of this has 100% correct is that work is spiritual. And there is formation happening. And the Lord will do wonderful things in and through you as you work. But what we have to work out is how to handle the pressure of all this of companies that have grown their own social visions and have ideas on what issues you are to be passionate about and which side you are to fall on them and to place pressure on you to have a particular vision of the world. How do you keep your head with all this? Well, you have to have your eyes on what the Lord is doing and how he is doing it. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Titus 3, but I'm going to go back to Titus 2 because there's a bit that I missed that I wanted to explain more fully. Here's the big thing I want to say today. Let grace instruct your work. Let grace be the pattern, the source, and the ends of the formative things happening for you spiritually in the workplace. Because something will be, and the Lord uses his grace and his gospel to do a work if you let it, and if you have eyes to see it. That's what Paul says in Titus 2, in the bit I skipped a couple weeks ago. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God in Jesus, that where Jesus offers himself, hands himself over to cleanse the people for himself of their wickedness, that they might be his very own. God's gracious initiative, his overwhelming provision of salvation when we are enslaved and stuck in sin and under wrath. God's grace is the center of his purposes in Jesus. God's grace is the gospel. But what does he say grace does? The grace of God teaches us. 
The grace of God is an instructor. The grace of God is a school teacher in a schoolroom. The grace of God is not just the beginning of the Christian life, not just the gateway and the hinge on the way in. It is the great compass, the great propellant, the great thing that drives all action and all of Christian life. Grace is to teach us in all things, in all ways, at all times. Another translation for the word teaches kind of turns the screw on this a bit. You could say, use the word disciplines here. Grace disciplines us, which they don't, don't seem to go together. The idea of overwhelming kindness and grace and discipline. That's what Paul says here. Grace constrains us. It restrains us. It compels us. It, it turns us from one direction into the direction of another. Grace has this way of training us and remaking us and reforming us. The Christian life does not begin with grace and then uh, continue and end with moral effort. It is grace from beginning to end. And so we are to let the grace of God in Jesus restrain, constrain, compel us as we work, to instruct our work. John Calvin says this, The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only. It is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates the inner recesses of the heart. Now this drives us to an important and perhaps uncomfortable question. Have you let the grace of God instruct the way you work? Or perhaps it has happened to some of us, as it can happen in all the world, that there becomes a slight barrier between the sacred grace of God on Sunday and the mess of Monday. A kind of dualism where God is in my prayer time but he's not, definitely not there when I'm answering those work emails or filling out you know, the performance data or working on a spreadsheet. A strange sense of kind of confinement to grace to some areas of life like family and relationships but not work. Are you letting the grace of God shape and discipline you as you work? What might that look like? How do we understand that? Well, I've got three things for you. First is this. Work reveals our desires. And grace instructs us to deny them. Work has this uncanny way of revealing what is inside us. I love how Elaine already put this so well. These kind of sneaky things that are happening in our hearts when we don't even know about it, when we're getting on with our work. But grace instructs us to say no to them. That's what Paul's language is here. It teaches us to what? To say no, literally to deny. To deny ungodliness and worldly passions. The word passions there is the word for lusts and desires. It's, it's a way of kind of trying to handle the whole morass of feeling and emotion and depth of desire that kind of just is always in us and driving us in ways we don't always understand. Ungodliness is the thing that grows up from those passions. Paul has a very negative view of the things inside us here, which is really interesting. The idea of having to deny desire is anathema, perhaps, in our time and in our age, but that's not Paul's perspective here. And we understand this better, perhaps, from the, the passage we just looked at in Titus 3. 
he describes what happens when someone meets the grace of God. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by what? By all kinds of passions, same word as chapter 2, and pleasures. What do passion and desires do to us? They fool us, they deceive us, and they enslave us. That's a really dark vision of the things inside us, that there are these good desires in us that somehow we submit to as cruel masters. And rather than being our freedom, they become our prison. That's Paul's analysis of the human condition, and it leads to a life of, he says, of malice and envy, of being hated and hating one another, that actually the problem of the human condition in relationships is a problem of the desire, of what's happening inside us. Now, what God does in the gospel is appear in kindness and love and save us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy, and he saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He pours out upon us his Holy Spirit who leads us out of our prison. More than that, he knocks down the prison and builds something else. Those words, rebirth and renewal, are words for completely remaking something. The word renewal is the word used in the New Testament to to describe the future world that's coming. And Paul says, you are part of the future when you trust in the grace of Jesus. You get a whole internal revolution and renovation. The prison isn't just dealt with and gone. A whole new institution is there, poured out generously by the Holy Spirit. Which is a way of saying, you are no longer a slave to the morass of things inside you. You've been cleansed and cleaned and remade. Forgiven and made righteous by the grace and kindness and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, what's happened to us, it it teaches us to say, well, when we're being driven by these things inside us, to say, no, I'm not driven by that anymore. I don't belong to that anymore. I've been set free by the grace of the gospel. Now, work has this amazing way. It's something about the pressures of work, the complexity of it, the relationships, the annoying people, the difficulty of the tasks. just has a way of showing us what we desire. You know, it's like that, that moment when you really mess up at work and you go home and you're just in a funk for a whole day or two and everyone around you just can't, stand how grumpy you are. You know, there's moments when you realize, oh, I actually really care about this too much. It's in those moments when you realize you, you, you cannot help but be overly defensive about the feedback you keep getting from your manager. You just can't help yourself. You just want to defend when they're trying to tell you what's going wrong, and you realize that you really are desiring to be approved by them. It's when you find yourself facing mountains of stress, of deadlines, and different pressures from sideways and above you in an organization, and you find yourself just shutting down because you don't want all of this stress, and you find yourself going sideways into unhealthy coping mechanisms. It's when you find that the power that you've been given in your promotion, you actually realize you're using it to dehumanize the interns underneath you rather than lift them up. 
Actually, you desire and love power so much that you're using it to crush those around you. See, work has this funny way of exposing us. It's wonderful, actually. It's a grace of God. When you go to work tomorrow and you realize something disordered within you, know that the Holy Spirit's actually helping you. Grace is instructing you. And the Holy Spirit wants to say, you are not that anymore. You're not driven by that anymore. Say no to that. Say no to that. You know, you're justified by the grace of God, not by your performance, remember. It doesn't matter that you messed up today. You're not looking forward to a property portfolio, but to eternal life by the grace of Jesus. He has shown you kindness and love and mercy, lavishing things on you. They are annoying. But God loved you anyway. It's in those moments where our work exposes our desires, we can learn what Paul says is self-control, actually. Maybe that is the great work of the Holy Spirit in your work life, to teach you self-control. To, by the grace of God, not always give in to the morass of desires within you, because you've been freed from them, because grace is directing you to deny them and live differently. It's an interesting question to ask, and I'd love you to ask it. What desires is the Holy Spirit revealing that are in you as you work? But it's not just the work of denial here. That's a very negative view on the whole. There are two positive things Paul wants to say, and the first is this. Grace summons us to work in an upright and godly way. Actually, summons us and positions us and throws us toward a positive vision for life. Is what Paul says in chapter 2 again. Live, say no, to live for the purpose of, you don't just deny them, but for the purpose of living a self controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. You see, what the gospel gives you is this wonderful head clearing reminder of what actually matters. God saved you in Jesus, you're awaiting his glory to come, and right now is a present moment that will end. It's a present age, it's an overlap, a waiting moment. And the right way to live in the in-between is upright and godly. To live in a righteous way. To live in a way that God would love, that seeks his purposes, that seeks his kingdom, that seeks his honor. That is overflowing with a sense of what God has done for you and lets that overflow to others. You see, what grace teaches us is to not just get pulled along into the currents of our work and our organization or our industry. Lots of things happen in workplaces that people just assume are the way things just have to be done. And often those involve compromises that involve people or profit or supply lines or cost to the environment, all kinds of things. Spurgeon put this really well when he was talking about this passage. And I couldn't help because he was talking about work. I think, oh, I should include it. He's talking to Christian businessmen and women. To his fellow men, the believer lives righteously. He's quoting the word upright. I cannot understand that a Christian who can do a Dirty thing in business, craft, cunning, overreaching, misrepresentation, and deceit are no instruments for the hand of godly men and women. I'm told that my principles are too angelic for business life. 
Man or woman cannot be a match for his fellow person in trade if he's too puritanical. But a Christian profession without uprightness is a lie. Grace must discipline us toward righteous living. I love how he throws us in the mix here because there's just moments in every industry we just think, well, that's just, that's just the way everyone turns a profit. You just have to make that amount of waste into the environment to make a profit. That's just what everyone does. We have to do it too. We have to outsource and, and kind of to de-skilled labor to pay them less so that we can make sure we can meet our clients' business line. Well, everyone just you know, underquotes what it really costs to a client. That's just what everyone does, and we do it too. What the grace of God teaches us is that none of these things are inevitable. The only thing inevitable in life is Jesus. And so it summons us to be self-controlled, to stop and to ask the question, is this really the way it has to be done? In a toxic work culture where everyone is demeaning and self-promoting, maybe that's not the way it all has to be done. My builder friend Peg, who comes in the morning, is a wonderful man. And I don't know if you know, but the culture of tradies on construction sites, but it gets interesting sometimes. And he, as someone who employs lots of people, has a very distinct vision of what a work site should look like. And he will throw people off his site, even if it puts him off a deadline, if they are demeaning women, or if their language and joking is too coarse, because he will not accept that. He will not accept that construction sites have to be vulgar to get things done. They don't have to be. And so he's choosing, instructed by the grace of God, he literally on every concrete slab he writes, he writes a Bible verse, uh, founded on the grace of God, decides to live an upright and righteous working life. Let's be honest at this point. Not all of us are in a position where we can dictate the terms of our work, in charge of the processes and the systems so that everything can be honest or everything can treat everyone perfectly. Most of us don't have that position. Most of us are in compromised positions where we have to do the decisions that others have already given us. But to the extent in which it's possible to us, we ought to stop and say, is this actually right? Is this actually grace-filled and godly? And if not, can I do something different? The grace of God is instructing me to, if I can, But Paul goes even further, and this is the message I would think of the whole of the book of Titus. The whole book of Titus is, is summed up in this. That grace instructs us, it makes us eager to do good at work. It doesn't just help us deny what's inside us, it doesn't just help us to summon to, to stand up to the currents of things going wrong and do different. It summons us to be eager for something better. Let me give you two examples in the book, there's heaps more. At the end of chapter 2, that section, Jesus Christ redeems us for what purpose? The people that are his own who are eager to do what is good. At the end of Titus 3, the the passage we just read in verse 8, what does he say? This is a trustworthy saying, i.e. everything I just said is great and trustworthy. I want you to stress these things so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. I love the logic of, of chapter 3. We'll come back to it next week, and we'll come back to the idea of what good work is next week for a whole week. But what he says is, is he outlines this beautiful picture of what God has done in Jesus. 
and he spares no detail. He goes through every word carefully and beautifully. And he says, if you run this over again and again and again, if you stress this, if you preach this, Titus, to the people on Crete, they will not be able to help themselves. They'll be eager to do good. Because grace doesn't just remove desires from us. It plants these new ones, these longings, that reflect the very kindness and love and generosity we've been shown. Just look at this list. Look how wonderful it is. The kindness and love and mercy of God that appears through free initiative overwhelmingly. The generous provision of the Holy Spirit, not the, the, the kind of stingy provision, justified by grace made heirs. This wonderful list. This is what God does for you in Jesus. And in here is an antidote to the things we long for that lead us astray and something that can replace new longings in us. It's supposed to just wash over and overwhelm us, propelling and compelling us to something else. Here's what I want you to do, just for a quick second. Grab your outline. And what I want you to do is I want you to pick one of these sentences. Everyone's like, where's my outline? (laughs) I don't have one. Too bad. One of these sentences, one of these lines of what God has done in the gospel, of the grace of God, you need tomorrow at work. I guarantee you. I want you to pick one. Pick one. You know, maybe, maybe you need to remember tomorrow that it's not because of righteous things you've done, verse 5, but through his mercy you're saved. That your work performance tomorrow does not ultimately matter to him and your salvation and your security. Maybe you need to remember how lavish The Holy Spirit has been poured on you. And you need to be reminded that you are not chained to your toxic culture or enslaved to your desires. You've been set free by the gospel. Maybe you need to remember that you've been justified. You've been approved by the grace of God. That you are acceptable to him. You're loved by him. And so it doesn't matter if your colleagues don't like you very much. Or if you're doing it trying to do a good job, but it's all going wrong, and your manager doesn't think you're very good. Jesus is still in love with you. Or maybe you need to remember that actually, your work right now doesn't secure your eternity, because you're an heir of things already. Can you pick a line, please? Because I guarantee that if you take one of these lines, and you stress it to yourself each day this week, it might just be powerful enough to help you say no to something inside you, to say yes to something different, and it might even spark your imagination for something good you never even thought of before. Friend, you know, what it feels like in modern work is that there is this unending current in companies that has just grabbed a hold of you and it will take you where it wants you to go. And that the tools for formation and discipleship are in their hands. But friend, remember, there is a greater current, a more powerful stream. It is the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you let it, it is strong enough to carry you and propel you in a stronger, more vibrant, more vital, and more wonderful way than anything you think is pressing on you. Don't worry about yourself. Don't worry about your colleagues. Don't worry about your company. Stress the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray today for the breaking down of the wall between the grace of God we experience today and the work tomorrow. And we ask the grace we experience today to instruct tomorrow. That you would constrain and restrain and compel us by your love and your mercy and your kindness into a whole different way of being tomorrow. Lord, take up this shard of the gospel that each of us has grabbed tonight and press it upon our hearts, we pray, that we might bring glory to our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.